Before we begin this evening, I want to go ahead and take a moment to thank each and every one of you who have already tuned in thus far. When we started this little side project to get our very own stories put out there into the world, we were hoping that you all were going to like what you heard and were going to support us. And we are thrilled to say that you have really stepped forward and really have made this a space that has been welcoming and a space that we love to be in. I want to personally, on behalf of myself and the team, thank every single person who has taken the time to download, listen, stream, or comment and review our content and follow us on social media to allow us to bring our stories to you. You all are beautiful people, and we really look forward to having this be the beginning of a long, fruitful relationship. Thanks again. Now, let's enjoy today's episode. Brought to you by the power of the internet and fueled by imagination, this is Game Night Heroes. Toss dice and tell stories. The deeds of heroes await, and legends dare to be heard. This is Game Night Heroes. Hello, and welcome back to the Game Night Heroes. We are the Game Night Heroes, and you can be too. Let's get into things. Tonight we are going to be telling a collaborative story where myself and my four players are going to tell you a story where the outcome of that said story will be determined by dice rolling. We are playing the Freeport Trilogy from Green Ronin Publishing. It has been specially updated for the 5th edition Dungeons & Dragons rule set. Without any further ado, I'd like to introduce my fellow players. Hey everybody, my name's Rob. I will be playing Victor Reed. I'm Colleen, and I am voicing Iridanza. Hello, I'm Aaron. I am playing Arden. And I like long walks on the beach, pina colada. Uh, I don't like getting caught in the rain, though, because then you just get wet, and that's super uncomfortable. Yep, it is. <laughs> I'm Brittany, and I'm playing Nisha. And I, of course, am Kevin, the host of the Game Night Heroes and the Dungeon Master for this campaign. That means that I get to play as everyone and everything else. Without any further ado, let us dive back into Freeport, the city of adventure. Previously on Game Night Heroes. After being brought together in the pirate town of Freeport, four strangers worked together to solve a mystery of growing importance. After rescuing Lucius, the librarian kidnapped from the Temple of Knowledge within the city of Freeport, the heroes returned for a welcoming thank you and a mighty reward. However, rescuing Lucius was simply the catalyst for these heroes joining together. And now that that quest is complete, they turn their duties towards personal goals. Our tale now resumes. The Temple of Knowledge is quiet when you return, Victor. Not because there's no one inside, and not because anything is not going on, but simply because the threat is over. Well, the threat for those here in the Temple of Knowledge, that is. The nagging sensation that there's more that you need to discover about yourself and about the trinket that adorns your blade still weighs heavily upon you. And so... You decided, because of the answers that are so personal, you've returned to the Temple of Knowledge without the other three friends that you have to seek out the answers that you might need. When you return, you walk in the front and you find Norton, the young man who is at the front table. Um, hello there. Uh, I suspect you want to speak with Brother Egil again, he says. Yes, please, at once. Okay. It doesn't take them very long to track Egil down, and he does come back, and when he does so, he's got a perplexed look on his face. Oh, uh, is everything all right? Uh, you just left a couple of hours ago. Uh, yes, quite, Brother Egil. I hate to do this, but I would really like to talk to Lucius, if that would be okay. Um, 
Well, um, Lucius has been through quite an ordeal. I'm not entirely sure if it would be a good idea at this moment, but... Uh, you know, yes. Come with me. And he motions for you to come back further into the temple. And you follow him. And when you do, he takes you past the center area of the temple, the large worshipping chamber that has that large mosaic upon the floor. And you walk across it. You see some of the brothers are in the different corners, different alcoves and areas. They're tending to books. There's massive amounts of library tomes and different things set up throughout here. And you can see some of them are dusting. Some of them are reorganizing shelves. Others of them are sweeping the floor, just going about typical business that someone would in a temple when they're not actively worshiping. And Egil takes you down towards the other end where there is those large lights, the light of learning, he referred to it, that glows over everything. And he takes you off to the right-hand side, and there is a doorway that leads into a back stairwell. He takes you up a short flight of stairs to an upper level that actually overlooks the big chamber below. And up here you can see there's also additional books and different rows and stacks of bookshelves completely full of all kinds of tomes of knowledge and information. When you get up there, you see that he continues to walk across and he takes you to a small room that's off to the side. And when he does so, you can see that on the door, it actually has a small placard upon it that says recuperation on it. And he taps on the door several times, very lightly. And after a moment, then he opens the door. Lucius, it's me. It's Egil. I've returned. Someone would like to speak with you. Are you all right? Can, can he come in? And there's a bit of a silence, and he kind of looks back to you, and he nods, and then he motions for you to enter into the room. As I pass Egil, um, I trust that none of this will reach my three compatriots. He gives you a look as if he's a little bit confused, but then his face turns into one of seriousness, and he gives you a slow nod. He seems to understand what you're about. Appreciate it. I walk in. He follows you into the room. He kind of stands off to the side, and when you go shut the door, he moves past it and comes inside, and he says, If you don't mind, I prefer to make sure that he's all right. Uh, I trust you, and I don't think that you're going to harm him, but he's... I told you that I'm fine. A weak voice says from the bed. Both of you look over. You can see Lucius is sitting in the bed. He's wearing small clothes, and he's kind of covered up to the waist with the bed sheets. A few days ago, when you saw him, he was all bound and gagged and beat up quite a bit, and he looked really worse for wear. And although he looks like he's been healed somewhat, you can still see there's a vacant, lost look in his eyes, and he has deep bags underneath his eyes. He definitely is not back to tip-top shape. Egil looks at you for a moment, and then he looks back to Lucius. Well, even so, as I said, what happens here will transpire between the three of us. That'll be the end of it. Very well. And then he shuts the door and he steps off out of the way and there's a small chair that he sits in that's kind of near the foot of the bed. Well, I feel I should introduce myself. Hello, Brother Lucius. I am Victor Reed of the Anchors Reed, one of your saviors. I was hoping you might be able to answer a few questions. I'm not a brother. I might have been one. Before I was orphaned, it's hard to know if I had any brothers or sisters. And you get kind of a confused look on your face, and Egil pipes up and says, Lucius is simply a librarian here. He's not actually one of the brothers who follows the faith. Oh, right. My bad. Lucius says, I know of you. You and the two elves and the halfling. You brought me from that place. The place where the screams haunted me still. How did you find yourself there? Did the all-seeing eyes let you in? Well, found myself there, mainly due to my compatriots' investigation skills. However, there's this item I have that seems to have drawn me to this place, and it bears a Bizarre resemblance to many of the things I saw in that temple where you were kept. 
If you're asking me about things from before I don't remember, the time that I had away from the city is lost to me. If you want to ask me questions about what happened during that time or what I might have discovered or what I might have seen, I don't have any answers for you. Well, if you don't have the answers I'm looking for, do you know of somebody who might? I wonder, he says, and he looks up and he actually looks past you, almost as if he's looking at something on the ceiling behind you. I wonder if they look upon us even now. Perhaps their eyes reach even this far. And when you're saying... Is he dead? Who, Milos, the master? Yes. Oh, yeah, he's he's pretty well dead. Killed it myself. Well, then your weaponry has tasted the blood of evil. The blood of the great old ones, perhaps. That's what he would say to me when he inflicted his damage upon my form. That the great old ones would rise, and they would bathe Freeport in all of their darkness. That their madness would bathe the streets in glory. Right. Do you fear them? I don't fear a lot of things. But that one room in the temple, that was quite something to be afraid of. And he starts to shiver, and he kind of shrinks back, and Ejil gets up and moves over to the bed next to him. And he sits down, and he actually puts his hands on his shoulders to kind of steady him. It's all right, Lucius. It's okay. He's not here to harm you. Just, it's fine. And Lucius is whimpering. It hurt. It hurt, Ejil. Please make it stop. And he kind of rolls over on his side. Ejil tenderly lays him down on the bed, and Lucius faces away from you. And he says, it's all right, Lucius. There's no one here. They saved you. It's over. And you hear Lucius under his breath. It may never be over. It may never be over. And you can see the tears are streaming down his face. The serpents. They come. They come to get us all. They told me that I would be the first because of what I saw, because of what I learned. I told Milos I didn't remember, but he didn't listen to me. He didn't listen. He just kind of breaks down in convulsions, starts weeping. Ejol starts stroking his forehead. It's all right. It's all right. It's all right. And he goes closer to him and he puts his forehead against Lucius. and He starts rocking him a little bit. And just under his breath, he just keeps saying, it's all right, it's all right, it's all right. A moment goes by, and you actually feel like maybe you're eavesdropping on a moment that maybe is too private for you to see. You get a little uncomfortable, but after a moment, it passes. And just as quickly as he got worked up, he suddenly calms down, and then he rolls over, and he looks at Egil. Egil, why are you upset? Is everything all right? And he looks to you. You had a question for me. You wanted me to look at something? Well, I can show you, but I'm worried it might terrify you more than you already are. Well, two days straight of being starved and beaten and mishandled by Milos. I'm not sure there's too much you could show me that would weaken my resolve. Well, I just hope this doesn't bring up any old scars. And I begin to pull my blade out. You slowly draw the longsword, and Lucius doesn't waver. He just looks straight at it. And then he reaches a hand out very slowly towards it, very slowly coming closer. Egil looks to him, then looks back to you, and then he slowly kind of eases out of the way. Lucius slides himself forward through the bed so that he's kneeling in front of you. He studies the sword for a moment, not breaking eye contact for one split second with the blade. He slowly reaches his hand forward, ever so slightly, closer to the blade. His hand stops about an inch away from its surface, and then he suddenly recoils and hisses, almost like a cat. He shrinks back onto the bed as if he's been burned, clutching at his hand and panting. 
And then he looks up at you and his eyes go wide. And he says, no, not you too. No, get out of here. Get out of here. Get out of here. He just starts screaming. Angel starts to move forward to try to calm him. But Lucius jumps up off of the bed and he throws the covers aside as he does so. He just keeps screaming, get out of here, get out of here, get out of here. What do you mean? Explain yourself. Get out of here. You consort yourself with them. Get out of here. Go. Go. And he starts throwing things at you. He picks off his pillow and he chucks it at you. It bounces off of you. It doesn't do any damage, obviously. It's just a pillow. And then he reaches up and he grabs. There's a small book on the nightstand. It's his journal that you notice that you guys had given back to him. And he chucks it at you, and you put an arm up instinctively, and it bounces off. And then he grabs a small pitcher next to the bed, and as he throws it, it sprays water all over the wall, all over the floor. When he throws it, can I, like, sleight of hand grab the diary? Well, yeah, the diary just pretty much bounced off you and lands on the floor in front of you. During the commotion, I want to try to swipe it, because I feel like I might find some info from it that maybe we missed. Okay. Well, maybe more so for me rather than the group. Sure. Okay. Yeah, no worries. You reach down and in the middle of him having his big explosion. You reach down, you grab the book and you pick it up and you start moving your way towards the door. You sheathe your sword in the process. And as soon as you sheathe it, Lucia stops. And then he looks about the room again. Uh, I'm, I'm sorry. I, I shouldn't be out of bed. And he turns and he walks back over and he sits back down on the bed. You do a quick glance over at Ejel, and you can just see that his eyes are wide and full of fear and concern for Lucius. Um, Lucius, I will... I will see our friend out. If you can just stay, I'll, I'll be back shortly. Lucius goes, Someone spilled the pitcher on the floor. As he looks about the room, trying to figure out what happened. Lucius sits back down on the bed, and Ejel fixes the covers around him and straightens up the pillow so he's comfortable again before crossing the room. And he opens the door for you, and the two of you step out into the small little hallway. And you can see as you step out that there's a group of brothers that have all surrounded outside the door. Look like they came to the screaming as if they thought something was happening. And when they see the two of you walk out calmly, they just look to Egil, and he puts up the reassuring hand, and they bow and move out of the way so the two of you can continue to move down the hall. Egil says, I'm sorry you had to see that. As you can see, it's it's difficult going right now, but we will uh, we will do what we can to make him comfortable and to make sure this passes. Yes. I'm sorry that we could save his physical form, but we just could not save his mind, it seems. Well, there's work to be done, but we can make sure that it is done. You have all done enough, more than I can ever repay you for. Well, I can give you one last bit of payment, I suppose. If you are interested in finding out about that, and he points to the trinket on your sword, uh, there is a man that we know of here within the temple, a man who we sometimes go to for obscure and out-of-place knowledge. He's a man who actually owns a shop. It's a small little out-of-the-way curios, I guess you could call it, in the merchant district. Uh, You could find him easily enough. I can give you directions there, and he might be able to glean some information for you. Rumor has it that he used to be an adventurer, so he is versed about things that some of us might not even begin to ask about in the first place. Very well. I do love hearing the tales of fellow adventurers. Yes, of course. Of course. And the two of you make your way back down to the main floor of the temple unaware that there is another set of eyes from the other side of the temple, an older man with grayed hair and very plain, but very deep, dark blue robes that watches the two of you leave the temple with interest. A very short time later, Victor, you find yourself in the Merchant District, on a street that's down near the warehouse district, you found the small shop that Egil spoke of. A small, single-story building nestled between two larger buildings, an inn called the Laughing Lady, and a merchant's townhouse. 
The building specifically is obscured by the shadows of the two larger buildings, and had you not been looking for it, you wouldn't have found it. But the description that Egil gave you was pretty distinct and pretty clear. And so, when you approach the strange building, the outside of it is made of brick. The bricks are all painted this dull, drab, white color. That might have been part of the reason why you didn't notice it. You do see that there is, as you get closer, a wooden door with cross beams upon it. And you can see that there is several different etchings into the door itself in what has to be close to 30 different languages. They all say the same thing. Falthar's Curios. A single flag hangs above the door, a simple green flag with a orange trim, and it just has an F on it. You enter into the front door of the shop, and as you do so, you're immediately met with the smell of incense. And there is a jingling of a bell as you walk through the door. There's a young woman behind the counter who looks up at you. She has golden red hair and bright green eyes, you notice, that almost match the flag outside. She gives you a warm smile. Ah, well, hello. Welcome to Falthar's Curios. How may I be of assistance today? Are you perhaps Falthar? <laughs> no. I do work for him, though. I'm Nell. I'm his friend and his employee. But you're in the right place, though, she says as she motions around the room. And you look around, and you can see the entire room is just stuffed full with different small scrolls that are all stacked up, books. You can see on another table, there are several small trinkets. Another table still has little vials full of various colored liquids, one of which has smoke billowing out of the top of it very lazily. And you can actually see that there is another door behind her where you can't see his face, but you can see that there are some deft hands that are working. They've got a book and they put a needle down through it and they pull the string up through and pull it taut. You can see them working very deftly, very carefully. Nell leans forward over the counter. She puts one hand up on the side of her face and rests on it. So, what can we help you with? Well, I'm told that there is somebody here that I can speak with that might have some information on things of the more curious type. We can do such a thing. Are you in need of business or of pleasure? She says with a smirk. Business today. I give her a wink. She grins, and she goes, very well. The name's Victor Reed, Captain of the Anchors Reed. She gives you a bow. Of course. One moment, please. And she slips back into the room behind you, kind of look around the room again and glance at all the different trinkets and all the different curiosities, all the strange odds and ends throughout the room. You notice that there's a map on the one side of the room, and it catches your eye. You start to move closer to it. And what it actually looks like is it looks like the Serpent's Teeth Islands. If they weren't islands, they were all one big giant landmass. And you're staring at that for a moment, and you hear a voice behind you. Hello. How am I being of assistance today? I have quite a peculiar item that I think you might find interesting and might be able to give me information on. You turn, and you see a man standing behind the counter now. Just over six feet. He's very thin and lithe, almost like a whip. And he's got long hair that just brushes past his chin. It's just touching the top of his collar. And it has a very distinct silvery sheen to it. It almost looks like it's glowing. Probably a trick of the light, maybe. He's got very finely defined features. And he does have slightly pointed ears. But you look at him again, and he's definitely not an elf or a half elf. Looks a little bit more beautiful than that. He's wearing very finely crafted clothing. They're in different various colors. He has a sash that hangs from one shoulder down to his opposite waist, and it has different symbols and markings upon it, none of which you recognize. And he says, Well, I would be more than happy to help you in whichever way I can. I am Falthar, owner of this establishment. What exactly it is that you wish to know about? Well, I was hoping... Can we speak about this in private? He looks about the shop. Well, you will see at this time of day, you are the only one here. Do not worry about my assistant. She is 
an aspiring musician of sorts, and so she may wish to turn your appearance or your interactions with me into a song, but nothing that will leave this curious if we do not wish it. Nell can be trusted, do not worry. Very good. I begin to unsheathe my sword. And he doesn't even flinch. He just stands there waiting. Now, the sword itself is not the item, but the emblem that adorns the hilt. I've discovered this in an island very close to here. However, though, I know it contains power, but I cannot determine what it is. Out of all the books I've read in my years, and all the adventurers I've talked to, none have been able to describe to me such an item. I was hoping you might be able to clear up this query. Brother Egil says that many times when they have questions regarding things of the more mysterious type that you are the one to speak to. And I begin to show him the trinket. Well, if Egil sent you, then you are well welcome here. And he leans forward, and you see that he reaches into the sash, and he pulls out a small little set of eyeglasses that he pulls out, and he rests them upon the tip of his nose. And he looks down at the trinket. Excellently crafted. It does appear to be quite old. May I? Yes, you may. And he reaches down, and he takes the long sword out of your hands, and he looks upon the strange trinket that you found that time ago. It is a small, circular trinket, approximately three inches in diameter, that has a very distinct Ouroboros design to it. Two intertwining snakes that wrap continuously around each other. You can barely tell where the one begins and the other ends, except for the fact that they are both laid in different metals. One appears to be a dull pewter-type color, and the other one appears to be a brightly polished, almost platinum-type of color. He looks up at you. Well, it is an interesting item, to be sure. If I may ask, where exactly did you find it? Oh, it helps... I believe it was to the island south of here called Tewick. Does that sound correct? He nods. Well, I'm not sure how much you know about the history of Freeport, but I can tell you that this land was not entirely as it was now. Once upon a time, there was an ancient civilization that lived here, and they had different types of arrayments with how they wished to make their items. I can't be entirely certain, but perhaps this could be from that dynasty, but it also could just be something mundane and not important. I highly doubt that this trinket is just mundane. We shall see. There are magics that I could cast upon it to determine its exact history and location, and what exactly it may be capable of, he says, peeking a single eyebrow at you. I will tell you that they do not entirely go for cheap. How much are you looking for? How much do you wish to know about it? As much as they can. After all, knowledge is power. He looks at you, and he stares for a moment. And you can't read his expression. And then he just nods very slightly at you. He seems to understand what you mean. Well... I prefer to have all items that are to be identified to be left with me. This allows me to really dig in and do some real research. I could charge you my typical rate. How does 200 gold pieces per week sound? little steep. Also, I don't know that I can really afford to be without my weapon for too long. I see. Well... This trinket, this item, does it remove from the blade, or is it permanently affixed there? Well, I haven't tried too much. In the time that I have tried, it doesn't seem to want to budge. Then I guess we are at an impasse. How much for a day's worth of looking at it? Well, I would not be able to get you all the information that you seek within a day, but I could get some information. He thinks for a moment, and he says, I believe 75 gold pieces should cover such a transaction. Very well. I go to shake his hand. 
And he shakes the hand as well. One thing, though. Do you mind if I stay in the presence while you're doing it? It may not be too interesting for you to oversee, but I'm sure that Nell can keep you entertained, he says. Perhaps I can aid her in her musical endeavors. Hmm. Perhaps you can. And with that, he reaches down and he takes the long sword and he picks it up and you see as he picks it up and he begins to turn. Just as he's turning away from you, you see he does this strange movement with his hand and the sword spins in a small flourish and he holds it down on his side the way that a swordsman would. And he walks into the back room. Nell steps forward and she kind of teases her hair around her finger for a second. So. Are you a bard as well? She says with a wink. I might be. So sometime later, after you have spent a very interesting afternoon in the presence of the young woman, Nell, Falthar returns out of the back room with the sword. And as he does so, you see he's got his arms crossed in such a way that the sword lies across his elbows. And as he walks up to the counter, he very tenderly puts it down, and he says, Well, it would seem my suspicions were correct. This symbol here does have roots that reach back to the ancient civilization that used to live here. This ancient civilization, unfortunately, was completely wiped out several thousand years ago. These items, therefore, are extremely rare. Would you be interested in parting with the blade? No, not particularly. Well, I could pay you handsomely. You'd offer me all the money in the world, but that is definitely my treasure. Very well, then. I can also tell you this. He says that he actually reaches forward, and much faster than you would expect, his hand shoots out and grabs around your wrist, and he has a look on his eyes that's very serious, and he says, I am not interested in having this item. Get too far out of my grasp. I would recommend that perhaps you and I could form an arrangement going forward. And what kind of arrangement might that be? If you would be willing to return here for several visits, so that I may begin to study the blade and ally more magics upon it to know what exactly it is that it does, I can make sure that you are able to glean all the information that you wish. Let me guess, this comes at a price? I am pragmatic. It would come at a price, but I believe we can work out a deal. What do you have in mind? He looks at you again, that same unreadable look in his eye. I believe that if you allow me to study the blade, I can know more about the history of these islands and about the ancient peoples who once lived here. And in return, you can have the information that you seek about how to wield the blade properly, how to make sure that its powers don't change you more than they already have. Hmm. It's very tempting. I think I may take you up on this offer. However, though, I would much prefer to keep this between us, see, my compatriots might not be so keen if they found out exactly what this item is, if it is what you are finding out that it is. Also, I do offer a word of caution. The last gentleman I showed this blade to went into a state of shock and terror. He keeps that very steady gaze upon you, and he says, I believe you will find me to be made of sterner stuff. And you can see there's a slight golden glow across his pupils as he says that. So what kind of sense do I get? Do I sense that he's trustworthy? Because part of me is almost wondering, is he like two-faced and he's going to be Milo's all over again? You definitely get the feeling that this guy is not telling you everything, but he's not coming across as hostile. He's definitely coming across as he's being straightforward in terms of his intention to actually look into the blade, but the reasons why might remain a secret. Uh, okay. 
That's kind of what I was figuring. All right. I accept the terms of your deal. I will meet with you here after hours. I believe that would be best. Perhaps, oh, maybe a better idea. Perhaps you let me work here. And while I'm working, you can study the blade. He studies you for a minute. And then for the first time since you've interacted with him, he gets a small curl at the corner of his mouth. Almost like a smile. And you do notice that it does have a little bit of a wicked bent to it. And then he says, very well. And he puts his hand out for you to shake it again. I believe the uh, bonus salary for starting would be 75 gold pieces, wouldn't you say? Nell actually breaks out and starts busting up laughing. She was eavesdropping the entire time. And he just very quickly turns his gaze in her direction and she stops. Not because she's afraid or anything, but just because, oh no, dad caught me kind of attitude. (laughs) And then she looks at you and has like a little smirk. And he just nods at you. But perhaps I shall see you tomorrow evening. We shall begin looking into what exactly it is that this Hexblade does to gain you your powers. It's with a sense of unease that you find yourself in the Black Gull, Iridanza. The tavern itself is not too bad. You've seen worse in your travels the few times you've been to the surface, but it's definitely the worst you've seen thus far here in Freeport. The Black Gull itself, you learned from the people in the tavern who tried to spark up a conversation with you, possibly trying to con you out of something that it got its name from a huge raven that once frequented the place when it first opened. As the story went, the creature flew into the door one day and refused to leave. The owner of the place started feeding the bird, and one night, a sailor who was there and was three sheets to the wind looked up from a spot on the floor and said, That's the blackest gull I've ever seen. And the name stuck. There's no black gull here now, other than the stuffed one behind the counter on the wall. But you're not here to look at birds as much as you'd like to. You're here to meet with a man that could perhaps determine the entire fate of the future of your race. You sit alone, and those, as I mentioned, who have come up to try to make conversation with you have been a mixture of men. Some of them were trying to woo you, perhaps. You quickly put a stop to that with your disinterested gaze. There was one who even tried to interest you in a card game, but... You don't partake in such things. You're sitting here, and you're beginning to think that perhaps the meeting time that you planned, a postponement for sure, but one that had to be planned nonetheless, is going to turn out to be a waste of time when you see an individual come through the front door. You have not met Gavin A. Taurus before, but you do know from the description that your father gave you that he's a gnome, and so you notice pretty readily when a very finely dressed gnome walks through the front door. He saunters in, walks through the place as if he owns it, and makes his way over to your table. You can see that he's wearing a very finely crafted, dark burgundy overcoat with brocaded buttons. His long, lustrous black hair that is a single braid down the center of his back, and his Van Dyke-style beard comes to a very distinctive point off of his chin. He wears an eye patch as well, also that same deep burgundy color. And when he approaches your table, he gets a smile that reveals more than one gold tooth. Well, I trust you're the lady I'm here to meet. I assume you're a Torres? (laughs) I am, at your service. And he turns into a slight flourish that seems to be made up just for you. And then he bows deeply. He jumps up onto the chair next to you and stands so that you guys can be eye to eye. Well, I got to say, it's not all the days that I meet myself, a nice fine lady from the Sea Kingdom. Tell me, how is your father, lady? He's doing well. He'll be better when I retrieve this artifact for him. Hmm. Well, I can certainly understand that. 
He did pay rather handsomely for the artifact in question, and I would like to say that because of that it is with a deep and heavy heart that I have to tell you the truth of it. As you see, and he puts both of his hands out in front of him in a wide gesture, I have nothing to offer you at this point, lady. What? There has been an unfortunate set of circumstances that has happened in regards to the retrieval of the item you paid me for. You were paid? Yes. Well, I assure you that it's not typically how I like to do business, but I do believe you deserve to know the truth of it. I paid an entire crew, very handsomely, in fact, to go and retrieve the item. It was a captain that I trusted with such an endeavor. And the entire crew failed to return. Now, I'm not anyone to say that perhaps the crew might have decided to up and unfulfill their end of the bargain that I made with them. Even at half of the money price that your father paid me, it was well beyond their typical means. But what I can say is that the man in question, I would not believe, would go against me. And with that, he gets a slight grimace on his face, and you can tell that there's something sinister laced behind his words. Almost as if people who go against him, people who try to cross Gavin A. Taurus, tend to not do it twice. So, I believe this puts us at an impasse, and I... I'm not entirely sure how I could make it up to you. Except save with this. And he reaches into his coat, and he pulls out a rolled-up piece of paper. He hands it over to you. I snatch it from him, and I start reading it. You read through the paper, and what you find within confuses you. You're not sure what the Arkham shipping lanes are, or who Counselor Verlaine is, but... It does mention both readily in the writ that he has in front of you. Gavin continues, That man there has more riches in this city than you could ever dream, lady. And he is a rare collector of antiquities and strange and interesting items. I believe he has something that you may wish to claim. And what might that be? Well, telling you it wouldn't exactly be sporting now, would it? You owe me an artifact. Tell me. There's a moment that pauses between the two of you, and then he gets a wide smile again. Well, legend says that there is a companion piece that goes with the artifact that your father sent you to get. And this companion piece was found by this Verlaine during some sort of strange, clandestine opportunity. If you were to perhaps be able to enter... The Arkham shipping lanes, you might perhaps find it. I do know, according to my sources, and as you will see written there, that it is kept within a deeply stained wooden chest that has a very distinctive seal emblazoned upon the handles of the lock. A three-pronged design, almost as if it appears to be a sea creature's legs. I believe you know what mark of which I speak. And he gets another wicked grin on his face. I take the parchment that he handed me, and I storm off. One of the only elves in the city I trust is Nisha, and I'm going to go talk to her and see if she can help me. Okay. You start storming through the Black Gull, and as you do so, the people around you seem to fade away into nothing. You think about the item that you were sent here to retrieve. You think about the mystery that your father kept about it, not even revealing to you what it looked like or what its powers were. But you do know that the item will turn the tide in the war that you and your people wage against the serpent people that dare to threaten your kingdom. You only hope that this new lead will be more fruitful, and you wonder what exactly will come next. Later that evening, when most of the city of Freeport would find themselves winding down for the night, or already asleep within their beds, two figures moved down a hall, making their way towards two open, large, black doors. 
The first turns to the other, panting, a bit out of breath, his paunch pretty evident over his belt. All I'm saying is I don't understand why we had to pull the short straw on this. I mean, did you see that craziness that was inside that place? I don't want to be anywhere near it. I don't want to be dealing with it. Well, we do what we do because it is our job, the other said solemnly. He had long ago accepted that there were times that being a member of the Sea Lord's Guards depicted activities that were less than savory. Look, all I'm saying is I don't want to go back in there. I was in there once, and it was enough for me. That place is unnatural. Just be lucky you hadn't have to go inside that all-black room down the front. I heard that Stefan went in, and they took him away. Took him away? What the hell does that mean? I don't know. That's all I heard. He went in there, and then they took him away. A shiver ran down the spine of both men, wondering what perhaps could have caused that screaming, that relentless, horrific, nightmarish shriek that had emanated from Stefan when they dragged him out of this place. They continued their path down the hall, moving towards several rooms of open doors. Other guardsmen were within, investigating, looking around at the strange accoutrement that decorated it. As they cleared one of the last bends, they saw a pool of blood upon the floor. The first sign of battle, other than those strange snake creatures up towards the front of the hall. They entered within the chamber proper, looking at the carnage that still strewn about. Three men remained within the room, dead upon the floor. Two were human, of that there was no doubt. Their dark robes did disguise some of their features and their build, but their faces were evident enough. They had been battered and beaten, a death caused by fire and metal, steel blades as well as magic. The third creature within the room was what gave them pause, and even now the two guardsmen wished that they had been home in bed, dreaming of other things besides seeing this. The first looked to the other and spoke again. Look, all I want to know is why do we have to go about going about this new captain? I don't know anything about this man. And tell me how exactly was it that a tiefling went ahead and rose up among the ranks so high? I mean, don't they know that there's a problem with those type of people? That strange bloodline that they have? I mean, look at this place. He could might as well have been born in here, let alone investigate it. The other began to speak when another voice broke through the chamber. I suppose he got to where he is by not speaking directly of his new commanding officer, while his commanding officer is in such direct earshot. Both men turned to regard the new arrival. The man was tall and properly built, with broad shoulders and a strong demeanor. His garb was clear enough that he was a member of the guards, but the superimposed V with a circle around it on an armband on his left arm marked him as a higher regard. The man strode through the room with purpose. He was used to having the strange looks that the two men gave him, and so he did not comment on their open jaws. He crossed over to the strange creature upon the floor, crouched down to get a closer look. The man looked upon the creature on the floor and wondered what exactly it had been. He wondered also how this creature might have made its way through the city without ridicule and distrust. He knew of those things. The captain reached forward, pulled a small swath of skin free. Could it be human flesh on the floor around the creature? charred and singed from some sort of magical overtures. It was magic, no doubt, although he knew little of such things. There was no way the fire could have burnt that deeply. What are we supposed to do with that body? The first man spoke. And with that, the tiefling stood, his maroon skin casting an eerie glow due to the green firelight in the mouths of the dragon-shaped sconces throughout the chamber. He adjusted the maroon beret upon his forehead, so that his two prominent horns jutting forward and slightly curved back to the back of his head that emerged from his forehead were more prominent. You have your orders, he spoke calmly. As for the bodies, burn them. When the rest of the Sea Lord's guards arrive shortly, 
They are to do their duties, which do not require them to have any knowledge of these things. Uh, yes, of, of course, we can do that, the second guardsman spoke, a slight sense of horror coming through his words. But the captain of the guard turned and began to walk out of the room when something had caught his eye. A strange item upon the floor of the chamber. He stooped once again and picked it up, and he knew instantly what it was. He had not always been a guardsman, and in his past he had grown up a farmer's son, so he knew a turnip when he saw one. Strange, he thought. A bite was taken out of it. A small one. He turned to leave once more and noticed the footprints that moved through the blood caused by the death in the chamber. Clearly four sets of footprints, three of middling size and another one smaller. He had been called in because the other guardsmen had, incorrectly he assumed, believed that the footprints were caused by a child, but the captain knew better. A halfling could easily make such prints. What do you think happened here? The guardsman spoke. A battle, assuredly. Someone, I believe, meddled where they did not belong. How many? There had to have been an army of them to cause this death. He looked back to the footprints once more. No, he knew exactly how many there had been. Four at the most. And with the new evidence within his pocket, he knew where to start looking. He turned and began to make his exit out to the front, and he could already hear the beginnings of the liquids being poured upon the serpent person's form and the torch subsequently thrown upon it. And as Record Lloyd, captain of Verlaine's personal guard, made his way out of the building he did not know to be the Temple of the Unspeakable One, he knew that he was once again full with that divine purpose that always guided his steps. He knew it was a matter of time before he got answers for what had happened here, and before justice was properly served. This concludes Act One of the Freeport Trilogy. There will now be a brief intermission. Thank you for listening to the Game Night Heroes. The tale continues another time. This was Freeport... Episode 8, Interludes. Please subscribe and give us a review. It helps new listeners find us and take the journey along with you and with us. We can be found on all social media at Game Night Heroes. Please be sure to follow us for updates and for new information. We can also be found at GameNightHeroes.com. The Game Night Heroes is hosted and game mastered by Kevin Stacy. Victor Reed is played by Rob Alexander. Iradonzo Orame is played by Colleen Alexander. Arden Langalar is played by Aaron Regner. Nisha Lycoania is played by Brittany Stone. The Freeport Trilogy was created and published by Chris Premus and Green Ronin Publishing. Logo design and podcast cover art for the Game Night Heroes was created by Josh Kay. Music is from various artists and appears from Pixabay. Please feel free to message us at GameNightHeroesContact at gmail. We'd love to hear from you. This has been a presentation of the game Night Heroes. Until next time, keep dreaming your impossible dream.